Could a Biden administration Department of Education become a field office for a national teachers union? A tidal wave of school districts announced hell no to in-person education for the foreseeable future. And how did one national education reporter screw up this week? All that, and even some pontifications on Twitter versus Parler, in this exciting edition of Random Assignment. Random assignment, everybody. Your friends Corey and Bob are here. I'm Bob Bowden with Choice Media, and that is Corey DeAngelis with the Reason Foundation, and also uh, Twitter aficionado. Uh, there he is. He's the school choice guy on Twitter, according to the great Tim Pool. <laughs> um, how you doing? Doing pretty well. Um, it's good to be on here again with you. Uh, last time we did the uh, post-election recap and now we're already having stuff to talk about with the uh uh you know joe biden coming in and uh uh, maybe picking uh the head of a teacher's union for education secretary and um you know he's picked his transition team as well which we can get into in a second right now yeah yeah, I, i wanted to just start with a couple things one i wanted to just in an act of self mockery say that i've uh my haircut uh choices have now I've, I've decided to mirror Corey's philosophy on shaving with my particular hair non-haircut <laughs> situation so i wanted to do that but then i also wanted to quickly do a digression on this whole parlor versus twitter thing which is emerging across the interwebs um some say that Twitter and Facebook have engaged in a degree of censorship in this political time, and that uh, that's why there should be a unbiased uh, platform, like that, which is what Parler markets itself to be. And then I'll let you respond in one second, Corey. But what I so I was like, okay, so this week Choice Media created a Parler account. Hey. We also I also personally Bob Bowden created a Parler account myself. And then I went on Facebook, and what did I come across? What did I read? Well, I have some friends who were um, rather negative and disparaging about this. These are actually <laughs> one of these. Now, I have a lot of you know uh, Facebook friends I never met before and stuff. But this is actually a guy I do know. I'm actually pulling up uh, my notes here. Oh, pardon the delay. Here we are. So. All right, so I got I create I already created my parlor account, and then th- this is what I read. I read a post that says, um, "WTF is parlor, and why should I care?" Question mark. LOL. First response: It's a social media platform where all the bigots and a holes and oh, trumpers can congregate together, free of someone flagging when they post things that are not true as fact. It's a hate stew. And there's more under that. Some uh, one person wrote, "It's part of collaboration between far right hate mongers and the GRU, which is a term for the Russian military intelligence." <laughs> it says, "Co-founder's young Russian wife's mom is longtime GRU funding from murky sources." Someone else then late below that writes, "It's a platform racists are using." This is their description of Parler, which is the you know some are yeah. describing it as the. Uh, Rich, Richard, Spencer, Richard Spencer's on Twitter. So can, can no one use Twitter now because one person is using it? <laughs> so there so there you go. I wanted to hear your take on this. This is what people on Facebook at least are writing about this parlor. And of course, they brand themselves as unbiased and they're a free speech flat platform. But these other people are saying, oh, that's because it's where all the racists want to hang out. I mean, look, I'm no parlor expert. I just created an account yesterday. <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm just fair, you know, so I'm 
what do you think? Well, I, 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 I can see why a lot of people are moving to parlor over the past uh, week or so with, you know, if you, if you type like two words, if you type like the word fraud and something else together, it'll, it'll automatically censor your post on Twitter. And we all saw it with uh, Donald Trump and he can say ridiculous things as much as he wants, but it just, every single tweet he was putting out, Twitter was censoring um, other big conservative names were getting censored left and right. Um, so I mean, that's sometimes and, just and, and, and yeah. And, or you can give, yeah. And so like this, people were getting upset about this. So, you know, they switched to parlor because they saw that as kind of, uh, uh, the uh, big media picking winners and losers. And I think in general, having more platforms to choose from introducing competitive pressures into the market for social media is a, is a good thing. I do have a parlor account as well. My Twitter is DeAngelis Corey. My parlor is Corey DeAngelis. Um, I don't know why my oh, Twitter hiding. is backwards. You're hiding. It's a secret uh, no, plan a plot on your backwards. part too. But yeah, yeah I, I downloaded that back in like June just because I wanted to start getting a following there just in case I need it. It's, it's good to have options for uh, social media. And uh, I, I haven't really used it much. The functionality hasn't been that great. I, I know they're working on it, especially since they're getting a lot more users recently that they weren't expecting. Um, they have some kinks to work out. I, I post every so often on, on Parler, um, but you know I'm still mostly using Twitter. Well, Choice Media is now on Parlor every day with news. We um, and look, I also went after I read all the Facebook I just told you. I went on and kind of wrote my own little response. I was like, "Look, if you know, my philosophy is that bad speech should not be handled by censoring the bad speech. It should be addressed by better speech. That people say yep. what's wrong with the idea." And and so you know, I had this kind of slightly deeper thought about it that like in this era of social media. We have these two competing ideas, okay? So um, people like to be told they're right. It makes them feel smart. To be sent information that just confirms your own ideas makes you say, yes, I knew I was right about that. Look at those other people that all say the same thing as me. It makes you feel good. On the other hand, we don't like censorship. We don't, most people I know don't want to say out loud, yes, I want to block ideas that are not like mine because I just don't want to see them or I'm afraid mm -hmm. of them or I just don't like them. People don't generally advocate censorship for themselves. So this almost these, this push pull, these like pull, magnetic poles, it's like a game of tug of war between these two things in the social media era of, of we like being told we're right. But on the other hand, we don't want to be thinking of, of the, of a selecting a platform that censors ideas away from us because we have curiosity too. So I think what's happened is what the algorithms have done have resolved this tug of war push push pull by actually just sort of, you know, it's 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 uh, the, the opposite views are just magically not there. It's not like they're mm -hmm. telling us or it makes it clear. It's sort of this. Um, it's sort of that we just don't see that confirming idea filter is happening. So therefore, we just think magically all the ideas in the world are like ours. And therefore, we don't feel as if we were afraid of the ideas that disagree with us. And we're fed the things that make us feel smart. And so uh, I think one thing maybe Parler might do, if nothing else, is shed some sunlight yep. on the degree of filtering that's going on. 
Yeah, I mean, I think Twitter and every other social media platform has the right to do whatever they want with their censoring and, and you know, and, and the rules that they want in their community, they should be able to pick. But at the same time, people should be able to vote with their feet and choose another platform like Parler. And, um, you know, maybe Twitter will start understanding. It's just really annoying. And it seems like it's it seems to be in one direction. It's biased against conservatives when it comes to Twitter. And so I think a lot of people, you know, don't like that. And there's other ways to block speech that you don't like. If it, if it's hurting you in some way, you can block the user on Twitter. Twitter doesn't have to do it. I can block Bob Bowden if I don't like what Bob Bowden is saying. Um, and there's other ways to hold people accountable for saying things that aren't true. There's a thing called a ratio on Twitter. If you say something stupid on Twitter, Twitter doesn't have to block it. If enough people can see that it's not true, they can reply with screenshots of things that are, that are true and make them look bad through a different form of accountability um, through user interface instead of having Twitter come come down like uh, and and be the arbiter of truth. So, yeah, long All right, side, so let's get but, back uh, to education. Sorry for that uh, that digression, but I'm sorry. Go ahead. Let's get into uh, the this Biden tr- packing the he's not packing the court. It's packing the uh, transition team for the Department of Education. Uh, with uh, teachers union representatives. So we talked a little bit about la- this last week where Washington Post had uh, leaked some information uh, based on discussions with Biden's team and his aides. Um, uh, they had said that he was considering a couple of people uh, for education secretary. One was uh, Randy Weingarten, the current uh boss of the president of the American Federation for Teachers, the second largest teachers in the U.S., and then also Lily Eskelson Garcia, who is the former former president of the National Education Association, the largest teachers union in the United States currently. And then also, I think they also reported Linda Darling-Hammond, who is not friendly of school choice, but she turned down the uh, 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 consideration. She said, I'm I'm not going to do it even if you pick me. So Based on those three, there's only two union bosses left. And then also, after the Washington Post reported that, Politico reported some similar information. So I guess they either talked to the same people or um, talked to different people, and the story is the same. They reported that Biden's team is considering picking uh, Lily Eskelson Garcia and Randy Weingarten. And they also um, mentioned uh, Linda Darling-Hammond as well, but here you can see at Politico they uh, they list these these three. Um, but after Politico posted this, Linda Darling Hammond did officially say, you know, even if you pick me, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. On the let me just quickly say about her. On the one hand, Linda Darling Hammond was involved in the Obama transition and and the selection ultimately that became Arnie Duncan. And many people were fear. Linda Darling Hammond, by the way, is the establishment's hero. If you if you want sort of an academic that it, you know represents pure establishment. In other words, if you were starting a federal grocery store and you wanted to hire an academic to do nothing but compose cherry-picked, you know, nutrition statistics yeah. and you know elevated verbosity to write about how a federal grocery store is what we really need, you would find like someone like her, ex- except she's the education version, you know, like a PhD to write about why a federal grocery store has to be the only thing that <laughs> is used for food. Like you would find some sort of academic that just churns out nothing but this establishment confirming opinion like a machine. And so on the one hand, people were 
surprised when Arne Duncan became Obama's choice for education secretary. In fact, that was a uh, source of a whole, um, there was a whole book about Democrats for education reform and how that group helped weigh in and get Arne Duncan to be the education secretary. He was far more hospitable to school choice than many of the other considerations. So people might say, oh, maybe the same thing will happen here. I don't know. I don't think so. I'm not, I'm not holding my breath for that. I'm fearing the worst. I'm fearing it's going to be a Weingarten or Skelson Garcia type uh, head of the education department. And well, if the, Senate, if, the Senate, if the Senate confirms, you know, uh, you know, it's looking like the Republicans will have 51 in the Senate. And so they could block, you know, Lily Eskelson Garcia or Randy Weingarten. But right. who knows that, you know, if, the, if somehow one of the Republicans vote for her, then there you go. It, 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 it automatically flips with the VP Kamala Harris being the deciding vote. Um, so they don't have to flip many votes uh, to, to, right. to, to, to do this. But I wanted to read just from the political article real quick. Here's a quote where, you know, so you don't have to take our word for it. There's also widespread ex expectation that he wants, Joe Biden wants to put a union official or someone with union ties in his cabinet. Both of these factors have made Lily Eskelson Garcia, an elementary school teacher and the immediate past president of the NEA, the National Education Association, an early favorite for the position. They continue by saying, Weingarten, the president of the American Federation for Teachers, is also frequently mentioned as a contender, although she would likely prompt uh, strong Republican opposition. Uh, and then also the the latest news on this that came out. So we already know from two different sources, Washington Post and Politico, from what they've reported, that it seems like, you know, the two biggest union bosses, AFT and NEA, are being considered for the highest federal uh, education position, the secretary of the U.S. Department of Education. Uh, but then also, Biden, I don't know if this came out today, but the first time I saw, I saw it today was Biden's team officially released their transition team for different uh, departments. And for the Department of Education, they listed 20 different people. And four of the people listed out of the 20 had ties to the two, nation's two largest teachers unions. The American and the team Federation is led teachers. by Linda Darling-Hammond. She's the yeah. head <laughs> of that group. And she, again, is the, you know, kind of, you don't get more establishment defending than she. So, you know, people yeah. might say and they hear if, they, if they're random assignment fans, Corey, and they what they'll say, like, what well, you guys talk all the time about how federal is only 10 percent of the American education footprint. OK, so big deal. So we have a union boss running the U.S. Mm -hmm. Department of Education. Remember what I said last week? I've been thinking for seven days about that same idea, which is that the Obama Education Department sued the Louisiana voucher plan because they found what they call disparate impact. They found a few schools where some different ratio, racial makeup of parents and kids chose the voucher than was in the regular district. Therefore, they called the whole program segregationist, or at least pretending to those schools, and they sued about it. I mean, you could have a federal department of education you know, run by a Weingartner and a Selston Garcia suing school choice programs all around the country every time they find any reason to do so. Uh, and, and if you can imagine any disparate impact you know, I don't know, the, the, the economic makeup of the charter school or private school choice program doesn't exactly match the district or the racial makeup of the school choice program doesn't exactly match the district or the special needs percentages of the school choice program don't exactly match the district or anything else doesn't exactly match the district. You now have a, a, a disparate impact rationale. to then And you know what's nuts? If, if it was the opposite, if the charters had higher 
proportions of certain types of students in an area that you know they're not going to come and say, oh, well, we got to close down the public schools because they they have uh, they're serving lower proportions of disadvantaged students. You know, they never do that. So, but yeah, you're right that uh, you know while we there's not a lot of change in that uh, you know federal education spending is only eight or nine percent of the total. You know, school choice really needs to come in large part through the states, through state governments, because that's where most of the money is. But uh, there is a lot of harm that could be done through regulations and through litigation from the federal government. Uh, perhaps they might go after the federal charter school funding, um, that program that helps a lot of charter schools stay afloat, especially since they they typically get less money on a per people basis than the nearby traditional public schools. So I think you'd look for that to be zeroed out. I mean, go, go yeah. me, please. I think that is the, that's the minimum you'd expect relative to the specter of, of, of destruction they may do to the choice movement. Uh, if, you know, if led by a unionista, shall I say? Yeah. So we're kind of having a move from someone who's been having the focus of the conversation on the students and the families, Betsy DeVos. And then now they're talking about putting a teacher's union boss into the, <laughs> into the department of education as the right. U S and, and before, Secretary. and before we, and, and before we leave this, uh, I don't know if you can bring up that U S news piece called by Betsy educators celebrate the end yeah. of the DeVos era. I yep. wanted to say this because I was just uh, personally uh, distraught by Lauren Camera, who's the senior education writer at U.S. News, by this story. And, the, and it's a very specific reason I'm disappointed, which is her use of the term educators. Educators celebrate the end. It's in the headline. Look at the secondary, the subheadline. Stakeholders in the education community celebrated Joe Biden's victory. As if there Teachers are, no are the school- only ones. As oh if there are no charter school educators, as if there are no private school educators, or as if there are no edu- as if they are not real educators, unless they're in over and over in this piece, she refers to educators as this one cohort of you know union supporting, uh, one size fits all public school you know government monopoly segment of, the, of of educators, and it's not all educators. And so I I, I kind of call, I'm going to call on her on Twitter later. I decided, but Lauren, I would say to you in the future, your language could be more precise. I would put it that uh, way. A lot For example, of people- lower in that piece, she says, "I don't want to rant. Sorry, Corey." But lower in that piece, she writes, "Her meaning Betsy DeVos's most notable achievements include rolling back and rewriting Obama era guidance and regulations, including those aimed at protecting the rights of transgender students and survivors of." Campus sexual assault through Title IX. Okay, okay. You protected the rights back. of the accused. You mean yes, exactly. Why didn't she write it that way? Exactly, <laughs> or at least write it both ways. Be an objective yeah. reporter, news reporter who uh, who says that um, you know there should the, the, uh, there sh- you know there should be a balance. It at least includes the idea that there should be a balance between the rights of the accused and the rights of uh, you know uh, uh, alleged victims. That th- that. You understand what I'm trying to say. Yep. She writes it as if, as if all Betsy, De- Betsy DeVos is sort of pro, like, assaulter, an anti-victim, no. and basically just says, listen, I want to screw over victims by making their lives harder. That's it's an absurd one-sided way to present these ideas. And so it's, it's throughout the piece, and it pissed me off. 
Well, I mean, Twitter Twitter was uh, all over Lauren today. I don't know if you saw that thread, but Lauren shared this article on her personal Twitter, and you know, a lot of people responded to it with uh, differing opinions than she had. So, if you want to go look for that, you can find it. But I'm not asking her to write it our way. Yeah, just just. Yes. Both sides of the story, the school choice community and the establishment government monopoly should write it with both. I mean, yeah, they, or, they or quote in a broader it with, sense, pro and anti anti Betsy have it both in there. If this yeah. is a piece about Betsy, it's not, but, it's not, yes. it's not in there. And what's interesting too, is you noted, look, yeah, there are some educators that are charter school educators and private school edu- educators. But what, what's also irritating here is that the head, the sub headline is stakeholders in the education community celebrated Joe Biden's victory. That assumes that the monopoly is the only stakeholder in the education community. You have exactly. families and, and, and students and you have uh, the private school and charter school sector, too. They're also stakeholders in this conversation. But it just it just all pretends that, you know, unionized teachers and, and teachers union it's, is it's the only stakeholder. Absolute group think. We don't even need to have the conversation. This is a national report. I'm, I'm pushing my own buttons here. This is a national reporter pretending as if. There is no doubt there's 100% unanimity in complete groupthink. There are not even any pub- traditional public school teachers who believe in school choice, when in fact there are. There are thousands of them on a Facebook group, for example. So, so you know, is, you know, or if she wants to become a commentary writer, that's fine too, and write a commentary. I'm just asking mm-hmm. for the, in the news pieces, present the news pieces as if there's more than one opinion. And what she did was exactly the opposite. She wrote a news piece as if all educators think one thing. That's offensive. Yeah, just 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 present both sides, and uh, you know they you know this happens a lot though. We you know the media does this, and they reveal their biases against certain groups, and this is an obvious bias against the administration, the, the current administration, and Betsy DeVos. I mean, she's done a, a lot of great things pushing for families and and. Um, you know, pushing to, to, to extend options to families. Wasn't able to get the School Choice Now Act passed, but that's because of a, a split Congress. Um, th- this also reminds me of a video from uh, the other day, Saturday, uh, when they were all calling the election for Biden, when he mentioned something about um, having, having an educator in the White House. I mean, a lot... Look, we've, we've already talked about how he's thinking about picking a teacher's union boss for education secretary, his transition team for the Department of Education are four people from the two largest teachers unions in the U.S., the NEA and the AFT. And now you had in this speech uh, this clip, and I'll play it right now. For American educators, this is a great day for you all. And this is similar to what he said, you know, a couple months back to Randy Weingarten saying, you're going to have an NEA member in the White House, like saying, you know, uh, don't worry, we got your back talking to the unions. My first response to this was because, you know, his team tweeted out right when he said it. My response is, well, what about the students? You know, that was uh, great. I, lo- only- I, I loved that response. Look at that. You 6,000 likes you got on that. Yeah. I love that response. That was it was pitch perfect. Well, and that's just what I'm seeing, right? DeVos's whole rhetoric is about was about the students and families, and that's what it should be about. It should be about 
families. And I, and I tend to think that when, when families have choices, it, since it gives public schools an incentive to do, do a better job, that's actually good for educators too. But the primary uh, focus of the education system shouldn't be the adults and the employees in the system. It should be the people who are supposed to be receiving the education, the students themselves and their families. It should be about the consumers of the product, not the producers of the product. And uh, it just so turns out that when there's competition, that benefits teachers as well. There's five studies on that topic. All find that school choice competition actually leads to higher teacher salaries in traditional public schools. So school choice is good for students and teachers. But yeah, I just thought it was interesting. You know, it's just um, that's just another example of him signaling to either the, you know, the, the teachers at large or, or the teachers union saying, you know, this is what we're focusing on. So I, I'm so people, you know, parents out there, let's uh, kind of remember that this is really all about families and parents, as you just said, uh, might be interested in the fact that schools seem to not be opening across the country. Uh, this was a New York Times piece we saw. It cited all kinds of examples. And yes, there's the headline. Will any more schools reopen? And in fact, what they said in the piece, they started with Philadelphia, delaying plans to bring the youngest public schools, at least uh, students, back Um and uh, they said remote learning will continue for all students until further notice. That's Philadelphia. They mentioned Topeka, Kansas, abandoning plans to bring middle and high school students back to classrooms this semester. Anchorage, Alaska, again, delayed a plan to bring students back to classrooms November on November 16th. Uh, San Diego and Sacramento paused plans to reopen more schools. Los Angeles does not expect to bring the majority of public school students back. San Francisco does not yet have a clear opening date. And on and on, Minneapolis and Washington D.C. and uh, on and on and on, all, you know, all these districts. Right? <laughs> it's getting it's getting almost boring to talk about. One slight difference in the stories was the Chicago school, which is a link I uh, the public schools, which is also a link I sent you. It said agrees to mediation with its teachers, and I found this story interesting. Having studied this in particular as uh, some form of a. Uh, self-flagellation, I guess, watching <laughs> Chicago with, you know, but uh, the fact is, so on Tuesday, they said they will sit down with a mediator to try to break to some, uh, to broker some details with the teachers union around returning to classrooms, but district officials made it clear, here, are you ready for this part? Made it clear they will not negotiate about whether to reopen school buildings. Union leaders wanted to provide input about any reopening decision and come to a, an eventual labor agreement. But the district has said, no, that is not what they want to negotiate. They're going to hold fast on their plans to reopen. My take on all this is that in Chicago, what I've seen for the last 10 years is that what mayors like to do is exude and exhibit this kind of theater where they stand up to the union enough to not be seen as a doormat in the press. They don't want the reputation as being a doormat to the union. They want it's it's a publicity stunt. But they end up doing it anyway. They, they end, end up, up doing exactly what the union wants. This goes back to Rahm Emanuel as mayor of Chicago. He did the same thing. He, there's even a teacher strike under Rahm Emanuel in in 2012, he, 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 you pretend to stand up to the union, even if enough to cause a strike, but then in the end, you give them every 100% of what they want. Every, it's always, at least in 10 years, it is always a, it's kabuki theater to have a Chicago mayor pretend like they're gonna stand up to the union. So anyway, I, I give all, we gave all the other cities and we're like, oh look, Chicago is the one example that's going to stand up to the union. I wouldn't hold your breath. 
for that. Bob, when, when this all started in March, would you have ever thought that we'd be talking about maybe reopening schools in like January 2021? This has just gotten so far out of hand. And I, I mean, maybe as, as we progress through this, I started to kind of realize that they're just going to keep kicking the can down the road that once they get to the date that they say they're going to reopen, then they'll have another, you know, oh, no, no, no actually we can't. Then they get to the, I mean, we saw this, we're seeing this happen everywhere. Yeah. In, in New York City, when um, Bill de Blasio had an opening date, when every time it would come up to that opening date, oh, actually we can't do it. Oh, actually we can't do it. And I think they're, they actually do have some type of uh, hybrid option now, right now, but like, in D.C., for example, they had been planning November 9th this Monday for a long time. Oh, nope, nope, they're not doing it anymore after they got pushed back from the union. And then I just tweeted today about Philadelphia, which you shared in that New York, uh, New York Times article. But I had tweeted about this a couple of days ago because I, I saw that there was union pushback. And then today I just saw the news that, oh, well, now the district after the union pushback, they decided we're not going to do it. They were going to open November 30th for pre-K through second grade students in Philadelphia, a very small fragment of school population, the youngest students up to second grade, November 30th, teachers unions got upset about it. And, uh, you know, I knew this was going to happen. And then I saw the news today, the district just decided to keep the schools closed indefinitely. It reminds me what happens whenever a district or a state says, we're going to get tough on stopping social promotion. We don't think kids should go beyond the third grade if they can't read. We're going to hold all the third graders back who can't read to stop the scourge of kids being passed on to the next grade without being able at least to read. They'll set that as a goal. It finally comes to the year that's supposed to activate. They announce that all these kids are going to be held back. All the parents then revolt and the district goes, okay, forget about it. They'll just keep... Uh, and look, you mentioned back in March, I would say like, especially once we learned that this COVID thing, like kids weren't getting it. Like when you first heard, oh, maybe this is the new bubonic plague and people will be dropping like, you know, people will just be dying everywhere. It'll be, you know, indiscriminately killing people all through the country. And we learned that there is, for whatever reason, an age discrimination factor to this virus. This virus is an age discriminator. So yes, we should protect the elderly and protect the yeah. immunocompromised. But it's as if we've, we're still at that point when we didn't know anything and we didn't know that this virus doesn't really affect. I mean, of course, there are anecdotes. Yes, I know. Yeah. The people will say like, oh, what about this one child that died or something or two or three? But in general, I mean, through vast, vast statistical overwhelming odds, kids are safe. Well, Bob, yeah, when we first started talking about this, right, when this all started, I, <laughs> I, I was very... I don't want to say anything about this because I don't have enough information about it. Right. I don't want to tell the schools whether they should reopen or not. They should have that decision. I still think they should be able to have, make that decision on their own, but it's looking like, come on, like every other business and industry is reopening. The private schools have been fighting to reopen or they've been open already. The charter schools are more likely to push to reopen. Public schools are pushing for the opposite and they're still doing it. And I don't know how long they're going to keep it up. But it's, I think it's because of a difference in incentives. And daycares are, op are, are, are open, or in a lot of places they've been open for a long time. Why, why can't kindergarten through second grade students return back to their schools if daycares can be open? Come on. Um, it seems to be more about power than actual safety. And then, by the way, the, the charter schools have been sending me things in the mail saying, oh, look, uh, you know, the public schools aren't opening, but we have options. You can do the virtual thing if you want, but 
we have some hybrid options as well. And I think it, again, has something to do with competitive pressures. They know that they have to cater to the needs of the families or the families can leave. But I thought this was interesting just the other day. Someone shared that uh, Mayor Bowser in D.C., where the public schools aren't open, uh, she had a, a uh, travel restrictions uh, related to co coronavirus. And if you were you know, traveling to a state that was a red state or high risk state, such as Delaware, um, you'd have to quarantine uh, for a certain amount of time after you returned. It turns out that uh, the B Bowser staff uh, classified her trip to a campaign event for Biden and Harris, or it might have been like a celebration event for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in Delaware, a high-risk state. And they said that her tr her travel was essential travel, and it's exemptor exempted under her own order. So essential travel for me, but not for thee. Rules <laughs> for thee, but not for me. Yeah. Uh, you brought up grades, Bob. Uh, so I don't, I, I don't know if you had seen this article in the New York Post. Department of Education wants to move away from grades in determining class rank. Did you see this one yet? I did not. Yeah, so uh, this is kind of like what we've been seeing in, in other places. Remember, we reported in in San Diego they were doing something similar to, uh, you know, make their well, theirs was a little bit different. They were saying that their grading system was racist or something. I don't think they made that argument in this article. But the Department of Education here's uh, the policy: schools should consider factors such as equity, motivation and academic integrity when considering whether to specify an individual's student's rank. So um, it seems like uh, more of like a, I don't know, it's changing changing the way they rank students uh, in their class ranking system. What do you, what do you think about uh, these types of changes? Go back to that line you highlighted. There was a line about equity. I wanted, I wanted to see that yeah. again. Yeah, I mean, it's like... Uh, so for the record, I'm actually sympathetic to the idea that grades sometimes, you know, the idea that we should pretty much, you know, like different kids think differently and, you know, grades mostly correlate to ages. You pretty much, you know, add five to anyone's grade and that's more or less their age. But schools should consider factors such as equity, motivation, and academic integrity when considering whether to specify an individual student's rank. What is it? What does that mean, rank? Like, 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 like before you go to college or whatever, you have your class rank and then you put it on oh. your train. Yeah, you have, you, you can advertise that to the college, like, hey, I was top 10 in my class, yada, yada. Um, whether to uh, specify. I mean, so they're not asking to change the rank. They're just saying whether or not you tell the world about the rank. Is that what it is? Like, don't say this person's valedictorian because. I, I'm no, not sure. I'm no, lost. I'm no, no, I think uh, those other things will be in consideration when determining your class rank. So, you know, if you, if you had a 4.0 GPA and that would be usually, usually how you determine the rank. Oh, I'm sorry. I misunderstood. I misunderstood yeah. the story, but now I'm, now I'm understanding. Right. So now it's like not only on, from what I understand, it's not so, only based on your grades. Now it's on all these other things that are subjective and, uh, you know, it sounds good in theory, you know, hey, yeah, we want, want to be more equitable. We want, you know, we want to incentivize motivation. But how are the teachers actually going to implement this? I think it's where the, the questions arise. Wow. Okay. That's not <laughs> unlike a story I, I suggested, too, for our uh, – well, let me just jump to that right now, then. There was um, 
a proposed rule to require teachers in Illinois to promote progressive views. Now, this is a new story, and I'll just I'll read the beginning. A proposed rule from the Illinois State Board of Education to have Illinois teachers vow to encourage progressive views is unconditional and discriminatory, according to a pro-family group. Quote, culturally responsive teachers and leaders are reflective and gain a deeper understanding of themselves and how they impact others, leading to more cohesive and productive student development. That's kind of like gobbledygook, isn't it? It's like basically extolling the virtues of culturally responsive teachers, I guess. But then it says the culturally responsive teacher and leader will critically think about the instructions in which they, the institutions in which they find themselves working to reform these institutions whenever and wherever necessary, assess how their biases and perceptions affect their teaching practice. I guess it's good to assess your own mm -hmm. biases, right? Do they need to tell, say that? Assess how their biases and perceptions, uh, let's see, and how they um, access tools to mitigate their own behavior, racism, sexism, homophobia, unearned privilege, Oof. Eurocentrism, etc. It further states to address systems of oppression. A culturally responsive teacher and leader will, quote, be aware of the effects of power and privilege and the need for social advocacy and social action to better empower diverse students and communities. I mean, I mean, first of all, there's so much to say there. First of all, do they mean empower diverse Attitudes and philosophies, by the way, they mean ideological diversity in the, mm -hmm. when they say diverse. Mm -hmm. I mean, something, right. something tells me they're not too into, not as much into ideological diversity. Uh, this is a statewide thing. This is not some sort of, oh, we found one little um, crazy little district somewhere that has some. So, what happens if a, if a teacher, you know, is found, you know, uh, not doing what, what they're asked of, you know, of, uh, I don't know. Like, it's, I mean, this presents a worldview. Them, report them for, you know, having certain views or something. Or Th this presents a worldview with which not everyone agrees. Let's start there. Um, this is, I mean, let's let's all admit that privilege is all kinds of things besides besides just things like gender and skin color. It's also did you have a two-parent family that you grew up in? And what's your economic situation? And are, did you grow up healthy versus sick? Did you grow up smart versus average or less than average? Did you grow up uh, an athlete or tall or good looking or a million? Privilege is a, a, a concept that is not, not just thoroughly subjective, but infinitely dimensional. And so, but it's, I guess, just these few categories of privilege that they want to emphasize as these are the only important kind of privileges we should think about, these ones. And um, it's troubling. It's troubling to think that a homeless white kid who might be straight and male, but is homeless, is somehow privileged compared to an upper middle class child from a black or Hispanic family. Why would anyone think that the homeless white kid has privilege compared to an upper middle class Hispanic or black kid. It's it would be I think. I, mean, I just think that would be crazy to think it that it looks white like, kid, kid is the privileged one. Go ahead. It looks like the pro family alliance has um, some negative views about these rules, and I quote: no, "It's just proposed. It, we need to again make that clear. This yeah, is proposed, yeah, proposed part change. of the Illinois, but." Look, um, with 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 a you know the specter of a teacher union led Biden Department of Education, uh, can't you imagine Corey stuff like this 
you know, happening across the country. And then perhaps then the backlash after that, which would maybe even more school choice and more opt out of the system completely by parents who just say, okay, time for a time for a pandemic pod, time for homeschooling, time for online learning, time for private school, time for something else. Yeah, I mean, because you know, families care a lot more about this kind of stuff, like the cultural stuff and the values-based education stuff than they do about, hey, you know, does your school have uh, proficient proficiency levels that are to, to my liking when it comes to math and reading test scores? I think that doesn't really get to the uh, heartstrings of the parents. And so if, if the traditional public schools get so... Um, uh, I guess low quality as defined by alignment with families values that may give families an additional push to escape the system. And maybe they'll start fighting more for school choice. Um, it's not going to happen. This is a weird federal, time, man. not going to happen at the federal level, you know, but uh, again, look, we didn't get school choice now act with, with Betsy DeVos either because of the split Congress, we still have split Congress and, um, ultimately most of the money comes down to the state and local levels when it comes to education funding. So, but maybe states will start to push more for school choice if families are mobilized. I'm not even sure. I think if, if they push through with state policies like this, it's going to be a giant wedge driven in what had been the fragile coalition holding traditional public education together. It's going to be people bailing out by the millions. That's what I think. Just a prediction. If we start seeing these extremely liberal, you know, some would say far left ideologies permeating what had been kind of a arguably left leaning but left centrist traditional, you know, school board meeting, traditional public education footprint platform, whatever paradigm. If you see this hard left push, I I think a backlash is inevitable. Well, we're already seeing an exodus from the public school system. Yeah, we can argue about what's causing that. Of course, the pandemic has a lot to do with it, and families may just not feel it's safe to send their kids back into brick-and-mortar schooling. Maybe they just really hate the remote learning that's going on that you can't really even call learning in so many places. But another part of of it is that parents are seeing, through that remote learning, the type of learning that's going on in their child's school And on social media everywhere, you've just seen lots of examples of teachers trying to convince people's children that, you know, certain politicians are bad people and that they shouldn't support that politician. They should support this other politician. And so I think families are are having a backlash moment right now to the political indoctrination that's occurring in some schools, which could be contributing to that mass exodus that we're seeing from the public school system. And I know you know this, Bob. We've said this uh, on a million times on the podcast, but uh, for listeners who are new, the latest Gallup data on this nationally representative survey estimates that about a there will be about a seven percentage point drop in the proportion of students in traditional public schools this year, which would be about a three point five million student exodus from the public school system. And the data that we're seeing coming out from each individual state is kind of close to that. We're seeing, you know, drops in Texas, about 4% of the student population, about 3% in Washington state and Wisconsin. Maybe it'll increase up to that 7% number, but we're seeing in that realm of there, there might be millions and millions of students uh, that, that could, that, that already have left the public school system that, that could stay for a variety of reasons. 
Stay okay, out. your turn. Your turn. I wanted to rant yeah, about that. Well, I think I think I did enough on that, buddy. So your turn. I don't I don't have uh, another story that oh. in particular I want, but I, I do want to talk about uh, the latest choice media story of the day. I thought that was interesting, and let's and let's do it with them. So let's uh, do it. And and the and the setup for it uh, is. Um, the fact that, in fact, go to choicemedia.tv. Can you do that? And yeah, we'll, website. Yeah. So scroll down a bit. There was a there was a piece on charter schools. Um, there, top aid. There Biden. we are. Top aid. Biden plans to stop funding charters. Uh, well, that's kind of more generic headline, but we pulled out the part about the chart about the, you know, basically that, that charters that don't perform won't get funded. Top Biden aide saying a charter school that doesn't perform under the new Biden administration won't get funded. And so, okay, I, we have kind of things we typically say about that, but before we do, let's see the video commentary that we published today. Is this even a discussion that we need to have? I'm Patrick Rickards, the CEO of the Driving Force Institute. Today's November 11th, 2020, it's Veterans Day. So special thanks to all of those who have served our nation. Today's choice media news story of the day comes to us from the Education Writers Association which is reporting on how the Biden transition team is saying that when it comes to the next administration, funding for charter schools isn't gonna come for those schools that are unable to deliver results. And this should come as a surprise to no one. The whole reason we have school choice is because we had traditional public schools that were failing far too many kids. Far too many kids that weren't getting hope, that weren't getting opportunity. So when it comes to school choice, we should be expecting the same results that we're demanding of traditional public schools. We should be expecting to see kids that are doing well on tests. We should be expecting to see kids that are getting into college. Quite frankly, if charter schools can't deliver the results, they shouldn't be getting funding, regardless of who's president of the United States. So first of all, let me praise Patrick for doing something we didn't do, Corey, which is mention that it's Veterans Day and salute <laughs> to the veterans. Thank you for serving. But that said, um, everything else he got wrong, though. <laughs> There's a category of charter school um, advocates who believe in these, you know, what they consider strong accountability measures. And so um, doing what I often call the logic error of shutting down a C minus charter school when the district school is an F rated district school. So the kids end up, oh, we can't have a C minus charter school or a D rated charter school. We can't have a one like that. That's not good. We've got to shut that down. And, and they're all say, Wait a minute. The, the one that course. we're sent to is now an F-rated district. And they're like, shrug. Well, well, it doesn't matter. We're about accountability. They aren't. So sorry, we're shutting down the D-rated charter and sending kids to the F-rated district because we are about accountability. We want to stay true to this accountability thing, even if the kids get sent to a worse school. So I'm sorry. I'm, 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 your, your turn. What do you want to say? Well, yeah, I mean, they, it's just it's wrong on so many levels. And one is that they don't apply this logic to the traditional public school sector. You never hear people saying, oh, well, there's this unaccountable charter school that's failing. Let's shut it down. They never there's so many failing traditional public schools that get more and more money year after year, despite forcing families to send their children to these schools that aren't working for them. And then two. Uh, this doesn't account for differences in student populations. So you could be incentivizing charter schools to locate in areas that just have more advantaged students. And so, yeah, it's more risky if you're serving a disadvantaged student population, if you know that you're going to be rated based on your average test scores, and then you got to get shut down. That's a 
a, a, an inequitable uh, policy prescription to try to incentivize these charter schools not to serve the disadvantaged students. It's a bad idea. And then third, test scores aren't the same thing as accountability. We should stop calling it accountability. We have these testing mechanisms in the traditional public school systems that families are not happy with. Why are they leaving these traditional public schools and going to charter schools that the charter schools are failing? Maybe because families don't give a crap all that much about standardized test scores. And maybe because the charter school is better for their child than the residentially assigned school. There's so many reasons why low-income families and other families are choosing charter schools and it's not captured in, in just an average test score. Um, so kids are more than test scores. I think we need to uh, realize that. And you're never going to regulate yourself to quality. Quality comes from an accountability. True accountability comes from the bottom up by allowing people to have choices to choose their children to, uh, to choose the school for the, for their children that works best for them. And that could be captured par in part by effects on standardized test scores, but it might be that you shut down a charter school that has a little bit lower test scores than your residentially assigned school, and then you're forced back into an institution where your child's being bullied uh, to a point where they want to commit suicide. And that's uh, something that we've seen with the school calendar being linked to teen suicide. It's an actual problem. And it could also, yeah, just be facets of safety in the school, the culture of the school. It could be negative socialization going on in the school. Maybe the kid is being exposed to drugs and gang activity. There's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on into this decision-making process that bureaucrats just can't understand with these, with these uh, measures like standardized test scores. It doesn't capture all that nuance. It doesn't capture the needs, the unique needs of each individual child. And so we need to trust parents instead and, and give them the power to choose. It's almost like a perfect case study of if you were to design for and care most about an institution top down, you would say, we want this institution to look good and have good PR. What could we do? We Oh, I know. We're the charter group. We want people to think good things about the charter group. Let's just shut down what we consider the bad charters are, the ones that we think get bad press, because that way it'll help the institution's, I don't know, rep in the community or our odds of convincing legislators to defund us less in the next legislative session, something like that. If your perspective is that of the student and parent, you think of all the things you just said. What if a particular kid is being bullied? What if, uh, what if a school, I mean, I've personally stood in and shot part of a documentary in a charter school for autistic students. That's the premise of this particular charter school. That's fantastic, by the way. It was in Philadelphia, in, I mean, excuse me, in, uh, outside of Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. Um, uh, there are charter schools that serve all kinds of populations that are, you know, non-traditional populations. So uh, essentially it's like fractals. The closer you look, there are more distinctions that go on about, more you learn about the student populations that are different and different. I mean, to what do you compare, for example? If let's say test scores were the be all end all, do you compare to the district overall test scores? Do you compare to the statewide average of test scores? Do you compare to the national average? Do you compare to the closest district school buildings test scores? Even just choices like that lead yeah. to completely different decisions regarding charter closure. So even, all, yes. even, yeah, even then they don't, they don't, uh, even if we believe that test scores were a perfect metric of quality, they're not, even if we assume that they were, they, these regulators typically do not account for differences in student populations. And even if they did, they only have very crude metrics like 
FRL status or special needs status or are, are you know are you know what what's the race of the student? It doesn't get into all the 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 nuance because you can have a a school that has the same FRL you know free or reduced lunch percentage as another one, whereas you you know one with the with the same with this one could be a lot less advantaged because they have more extreme cases of, of low-income students than this other one. Exactly. So this the curve is the same. Right. You, you exact, perfect. You could draw a line somewhere in this continuum of, of household income and say, okay, how many are on this side of the line versus that side of the line? This is our threshold that we're measuring as the key determiner for, for free and reduced lunch. But you're right. The, the distribution could be completely different, even if the same number of same percentage of kids fall on one side of a line. And even then, the effects aren't the same um, for every individual. It could be that the average effect is maybe it's a little low, but maybe for your student, it's a right fit. And that school did really good things at shaping your individual child's test score. So why, based on uh, how something works for so many other students, why should they, they be able to take the right for this particular parent to choose yeah. the school that works for their child? But it's just a central planning disaster that gets so complicated. They think that they can just figure out with these, you know, worthless, met almost worthless metrics, how to control the education system, despite the expressed uh, decisions and, and desires of individual families. They think they know better than it's an, ac it's an academic state. elitism, right? It, it it's is. a, it's, 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 it's condescension. Yeah. It's condescension against people that might have less formal education than you. And so you should have more power than they. And, you know, you're, after all, you're this, you know, moral arbiter of, you know, who goes to what school. So, um, it's, uh, Adam yeah. Smith's the man of system, the person who thinks that they can, uh, essentially plan everything. Uh. Well, even just in that video clip, he says, if we're going to hold charters to the same standards to which we're holding district schools, then we should close down the under... I thought, I thought to myself, what standards to which standards. we're holding district schools? Yes, there are some district schools that have closed, particularly in the last decade in Chicago and Philadelphia. Those are the two, those are the two cities I think that closed down the most. District schools, they tended to be half empty because of the charter movement had taken all these kids away. And so it was just inefficient to run these half empty buildings anymore. And so, but sometimes, yes, yeah, sometimes district schools are closed. Sometimes it's pretty rare though. I mean, most districts, unless there's a wholesale evacuation uh, because a charter movement takes away the kids, just pure underperformance is almost never a rationale for closing down a district school. Well, and charter schools are directly accountable to families. Um, Government schools are not. They're directly accountable maybe to the government. But even then, if they don't get the scores that are required by the government, they still don't shut them down usually. And uh, they're not actually accountable. I, I, I'll say it every single podcast that this top-down accountability isn't true accountability. The only true form of accountability is allowing people to choose the provider of the service that works best for them and yeah. to let them vote with their feet. It's the only way that we're only going that we're ever going to introduce real accountability into the education system. Right. Now, just a quick shout out to the trolls though, Corey, like there are a few cases of charters that are so thoroughly, really truly corrupt. They're not even real schools. The people steal all the money, you know, and fly to, you know, some country where there's no, yeah, that's, that's a discussion about fraud, not a discussion about the exactly. average test scores in your charter school and whether people are exactly. choosing it or not. And, and exactly. like, yeah, if it's not even totally... really like if, if it's, if it's a ridiculous level of fraud where any 
rational actor would show up and say like, okay, this is not even a school here. Sure. <laughs> there are some of those cases, but they're not very many. I mean, yep. <laughs> at all. All right, everybody. I think that's it, Corey. Look at that. Another hour. We were Boom. doing an hour just uh, all the time. Well, uh, all right. Well, thanks, everyone. Please like, share, and subscribe. Random assignment. Tell your friends. We do this for you, everybody. We are making this particular episode free. Oh, and by the way, all the other ones also. So thanks for watching, and, uh, you know, we'll see you next week.